Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 101. Um, Last week we moved on from the story of Zacchaeus to him, Jesus, telling a parable about a nobleman uh, getting ready to receive a kingdom and calling ten servants and giving them a mina to engage in business until he comes back. And we yeah. hashed out how the engaging in business, the how you interact and treat the mina or minas that have been given to you are how we respond to Torah and the instruction that's supposed to lead to good works and good deeds for the redemption of the world in our life. And that that king, that nobleman is going to come back and going to judge the servants yeah. according to how they used their minas or their life or their deeds. Um, and that there's, for some, it's going to be an opportunity to receive more than what was given to them, and they get the invitation to get to rule and reign with that king. And then yeah. for others that chose to live in fear and maybe complacency or self-degradation that they're not capable of of par- participating and, f- and fulfilling out these businesses and dealing with the minas, like it's going to be taken away from you. Like you're not, you're not going to get to participate in the things that come. And that was, yeah. that was some, some heavy stuff. And, uh, good news guys it's going to get heavier here at the beginning <laughs> of this episode. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. We picked a really weird spot to, uh, end the episode. There's just one tiny bit left of that parable, the big ending. And it's, uh, you know, not all good news. So that's okay, though. We'll start with that and then we get to move on to some other things. Uh, do you have anything before we start, Samuel? No, I'm right. ready to rip this band-aid off. Yeah. We're, we're still in Luke chapter 19, verse 27. It says this. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. (laughs) Ouch! (laughs) How do we turn this into a nice, lovely Christian message? Well, let's see. First of all, uh, an obvious question, who exactly are these enemies again? Okay, these were those citizens who did not want this nobleman made king, and we said Jesus. They did not want him to rule over them. Remember, they sent the delegation. Please, not Mm -hmm. this guy. So, now, how do we turn this into lingo that maybe we can tolerate and relate to, reconcile, whatever? Okay, number one, there will be judgment in this life, in, you know, many varying ways. Now, in this context, we see the judgment as the fall of Jerusalem and the exile that followed it. Remember, the kingdom was being offered, let's just call it 2,000 years ago, it was rejected, and so now Israel continues to live in exile even to this day. 
And so Christians, as we are grafted into Israel, we also are living in that exile. So, so there's judgment in this life, and that's the way it looked out in the immediate context. It, you know, it might also manifest itself in just various ways in your own life if you're you know, like the guy that I don't want Jesus to rule. And then there's the, okay, but w- what about the ultimate end? Where does this all lead? Well, uh, in our story, the way we see the Bible as a whole, all of this leads to eternal death. In fact, and this is this is where it gets a little spicy, Jesus, or this nobleman, this king, however you want to look at it, he's going to preside over their death. When you see the stuff in Revelation where, you know, Jesus is coming down and wiping out all these people, okay, that's these guys. And it's such a matter-of-fact end to the parable, but... But I think because of that, people kind of overlook it. They, they almost don't take it as seriously as they should. Real-life consequences are huge. And so we need to be like the first servants, the one who were turning their minas into more minas, which, in a way, it's kind of like actually turning these current enemies into minas, if, if you want to say it that way. Kind of see what I'm saying there, Samuel? As we're bringing more people on board, we're bringing more people into alignment with God. Well, who are those people? Well, they started out being these enemies. Okay. Right? We're bringing them in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, maybe that was kind of a silly example. But we need to be those guys. We need to be those guys. And then, just final note, we got to remember this parable, it's being told at Zacchaeus's house. And you got to figure there were probably some of Zacchaeus's, you know, quote unquote, friends there as well. Well, what would these people have looked like? Well, they also would have been the lost sheep of Israel. They were the outcasts. They were the sinners, maybe tax collectors, whatever, all that. So they they may have actually related to the enemies in this parable at the beginning of the dinner, and you never know. They may have found their way out of it by the end. We don't know. Anyway, these connections, uh, we also mentioned some of the connections back to the story of Archelaus, uh, uh, the way that the Herodians cared for their friends, and the way that they punished enemies. The friends became rulers over cities. Others were either imprisoned or killed or whatever. So all of this was probably very impactful for this particular audience. But as we talked about in the last episode, and we're, you know, sort of finishing up now, I think that this should be super impactful for people even now today. This was, this was a, this is a tough parable right here. For sure. And as hard as it is for me to listen to words like 1927 being read and thinking about that being a part of the narrative of God, it's a... It's humbling and a needed reminder that there's not just the feel-good nature and aspect of God's kingdom and the redemption and the salvation and the reconciliation. Like, God, ultimately, in the end, he is going to defeat his enemies. He is going to defeat those that 
pursued death and evil and uh, destruction and as as like sober sobering as it is to hear that like you we need a leader and a king to want to defeat the antithesis of goodness uh, in our life yeah yeah that's so good you know why why do we spend all of these hours studying preparing for the podcast making the podcast publishing the podcast why do we even do all of this even for i mean our audience is fairly small why why do we do it because your life is on the line this is it's all a matter of life and death this is a really big deal and in so many ways christianity has you know made it a little more feel goody you know it's, yeah. it's, it's and so yeah it is good to see these and and just feel the weight of them it's not the entire story but you know we we shouldn't be ignoring it it's real mm-hmm. stuff so yeah yeah i mean it's why we say our theme verse at the end of every episode like we pray and hope that you will do your best to present yourself to god as one approved yeah like a worker instead of an a worker for god instead of an enemy of god yeah it's all a big deal now thankfully though we can at least end you know sort of the harsh part (laughs) (laughs) We'll go on to some other stuff, because nobody wants to be in that all the time either. We get that. So here we go. Uh, We're going to finish up something here from Luke 19. It's verse 28, and I'll tell you why we include this. It says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So on the surface, kind of reads like they left Zacchaeus' house right after they ate. Uh, You know, like they had things to do, people to see, whatever. Now, practically speaking, I doubt that's what happened. The dinner probably went into the evening, into the dark. The dinner was probably, well, they probably stayed until morning. That's the real point. And another point to that, remember they're in Jericho, and from Jericho to Jerusalem, you know, it's about a day's walk. And so at least in Luke's narrative, you might imagine, yeah, so we get up in the morning, we head to Jerusalem, right? That kind of thing. But anyway, they probably stayed the night. And Luke sets all of this up as a segue into the triumphal entry. Now, we're actually going to go through a few other stories before we actually get there, but it's just cool to note that that's pretty much where we are in the story. Now, we're not quite 75% of our way through the Gospels. We're, We're getting close, but we're not quite there. And it's amazing to think that the remainder of the Gospels are going to cover, you know, basically his last week on earth as an ordinary human. And okay, he wasn't quite an ordinary human, but you know, you know what we mean, (laughs) at least by now. So anyway, that's kind of wrapping that up. Anything, Samuel? Nope. Let's head to the next section. All right. So here we are. Ah, boy, well, we're going to move over to the book of John, so put on your seatbelts. That's always kind of weird. We are moving over to John chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 55 through 57. It says this, Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. 
they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Okay, so Luke sets us up for, hey, they're going to Jerusalem. We're going to see the triumphal entry. John is going to give us a little bit in between. And, and he, he's leading up to Passover, but, you know, he, he's got a little more to tell. So he tells us that the Passover's near, and then he lets us in on a little bit of a cultural detail. Many of the Jews needed or wanted to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover early. They wanted to go early because they wanted to make sure that they met all of the purity requirements. And this was a lot easier to do while you were just staying in Jerusalem as opposed to, you know, being at home because things are just going to get in the way or get or being on the road traveling to Jerusalem. All kinds of trouble could happen there. So they wanted to be in Jerusalem, have time to go through all the purity rituals and know that they're good for the Passover feast. Just as an example, Samuel, why don't you read from Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 17, get us a little picture in our head. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. Yeah, they didn't want to be those guys. They didn't want the Levites to have to slaughter the Passover lamb for them. And by the way, you couldn't actually eat of the lamb itself. You could participate in other ways, but you couldn't eat of the lamb itself if you weren't pure. So there's a lot to this. Now, Okay, again, what you just read, not the greatest example, because these were the people who weren't doing everything correctly. But uh, it shows, uh, I think, kind of an also cool image that people forget. You had to slaughter your own animal. At least that's the way it was supposed to work. The priest wasn't supposed to do it for you. So to slaughter your own animal, you needed to be ritually clean to do that. And... Uh, as we mentioned, to eat the meal. The official purification ritual, just as a side note, actually took about seven days. So you could think that what John is describing here, this is in the week before the Passover, which is the week that Jesus is going to up, spend up there. So so we're all in this together, right? We, we see that. And then uh, John gives us a couple bits of info just to kind of set the scene. We've got many people who are coming early and while they're here, they're looking for this Jesus guy. And uh, for what it's worth, just generally in Judaism, in Israel at this time, they had an expectation. They expected the Messiah to arrive as this conquering king at Passover time. So we've got kind of this perfect storm of expectation and, you know, all of these things happening. But... Because no one was seeing him around, they began to wonder, maybe he's not coming. The reason they jumped to this conclusion is because the chief priests and Pharisees had been spreading the word, hey, if anybody sees this Jesus guy, you got to let us know because they wanted to arrest him. In fact, (laughs) they'd ordered anyone in everyone, they were supposed to snitch, inform, tattle, squeal, rat, sing like a canary, if they knew 
where he was. That's interesting uh, because haven't we seen previously in the Gospels where these same people, chief priests and the Pharisees who were in opposition to him, the text says things like they were trying to figure out a way, like grounds by which that they could arrest him. Yeah. Um, and in this verse, it just seems like they're throwing that out the window. They're just yeah. <laughs> yeah. like there's it doesn't even provide reasoning for why they're arresting him. They just want him found. Yeah. Uh, so that they could. So the severity of Jesus's fate is getting more heightened as yeah. we get to this last week. Yeah, the and I think from their perspective, the chief priests and the Pharisees, whatever, Sadducees, I think they're feeling the pressure because he's he's having more and more success. He has more and more followers. And from their perspective, that's just trouble with Rome. So, yeah, I think everybody's feeling. Again, it's that. It's like this perfect storm is brewing. It's kind of neat. Well, let's go on. John's going to give us some more detail. It's all kind of good, kind of fun. We're moving on to John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. So a little bit long. Hang with me here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served... And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it, for the day of my burial. For the poor, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Oh, John, always good new, good information and confusion all wrapped up together. It's good. Hmm. All right, so what do we have inside here? We see Jesus acting like many, or, many of the others. He's coming to Jerusalem a little early, and, you know, maybe we can assume that it is for purity's sake. Except, we see that he doesn't go to Jerusalem directly. He goes to Bethany, which, as we've said before, it's just outside Jerusalem, probably a couple miles. And he's been there before, at least a couple of times in the Gospels. I'm imagining in, in real life it was probably more than that, but that's what we see in the Gospels. And it's the home of three siblings— and these are probably familiar to you, too. We have Martha. She's the hostess with the mostest, right? And in <laughs> fact, sometimes a little too much, we saw. We have Mary. She's the one who sat at his feet in much the way a disciple would. And, you know, many 
Bible scholars wonder, you know, sh- should we think of her as a disciple or or, or not? And uh, some of her look at it different ways, whatever. Uh, but anyway, she sat at his feet. And then we have Lazarus, whom we don't really know too awful much about, except the part where they were friends and Jesus raised him from the dead. So Jesus, uh, we, I think that we're to understand that Jesus had been traveling on a Friday and he's arrived in Bethany just in time for the Sabbath. Well, why do I say that? Because John says it is six days before Passover. So he'd probably spent that day in a typical manner of every other Jew in his day. And again, that's important. We need to, when we have our mental image of Jesus, we need to see him as an ordinary, everyday Jew, at least in his day-to-day behavior. So anyway, now it depends on how you look at this. Some people think that it was the village of Bethany that that sort of threw this dinner, and others think it was the family of Lazarus that threw this dinner. I, I guess we don't know. When I read it, I just kind of naturally gravitate toward it was the family that was giving him this dinner. But, you know, whatever. Could be either. And it probably included, at the very least, the 12 who were traveling with him. Uh, it could have been more. We don't know. And this was, it was probably, at least what's being described here, this probably ends up being the meal that marks the end of the Sabbath as opposed to one marking the beginning There are a number of reasons for that, but again, it's a lot of speculation. So if you want to think of it differently, by all means, go ahead. But here we are. Martha is serving. (laughs) And again, it marked the if it marked the end of Sabbath, then she could have, you know, she could have done her deal, right? She could have been doing work. Okay. So Martha is serving, and you know, some things never change. Here's Lazarus. He's reclining at table with Jesus. It's kind of a detail we've never seen or heard before. But then Mary, oh my goodness, she pulls out all the stops. Do you know what that idiom means, Samuel? I do not know. If you played the organ, you would know what that meant. Oh, and, now I do. Okay. Yep, you got those little pegs that... Yeah, all the little sliders and pegs and things, those are the stops on an organ. And if you pull them all out, the organ is blasting its full whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Mary pulls out all the stops. And she has this expensive perfume called nard, which is actually just short for the word, I think it's pronounced spike nard. Weird word, whatever. I don't don't know. But now, there's a thing. It's weird, though. It may have come from the Far East. It was most prevalent, most popular coming from, like, I don't know, what we would think of today as like Tibet or Nepal, something like that, that area. But just as a side note, there was also a very fine Syrian variety. So that's kind of like right there nearby in the Middle East. Uh, But whatever, it says a pound, and we kind of need to translate that a little bit into today's terms. It wouldn't be 16 ounces. This was much more like just a little under 12 ounces. It's a a Roman measurement thing, whatever. Don't worry about it. So she had, it's still a lot. And it was very expensive. In this case, 300 denarii. How much was a denarii, Samuel? common term um a day's wages yeah so 300 of them that's like 10 months nearly a year's worth of wages right and so now there's a couple possibilities for that on one hand it may have been somewhat of a family treasure 
something that they had. It was for the purpose of, you know, burying and whatnot. On the other hand, there's a lot of speculation that Lazarus was actually a man of means, like a fairly rich dude. And so maybe it wasn't quite so grand as a family treasure, but nonetheless, it was still expensive, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, junk. So uh, anyway, we can't be sure, but here's the thing. She uses the entire contents on his feet. That's, I mean, I don't care who you are. That's, that's kind of excessive. That's extreme. And she didn't just, you know, like pour it out or whatever. She rubbed it in. Now, where do I get that? Well, it's kind of from the the underlying text. If you look at some of the Greek language and, you know, comparisons back to potential Hebrew words and all that kind of stuff, it really does appear that what the, what's trying to be communicated is that she was rubbing this into his feet. And then she wipes his feet off with her hair. And this was a really strong ointment. So the, the, the smell had to just be filling the house. It had to be super strong for Jesus and those nearby him. Mary, it's in her hair. I mean, this had to be really, really, really intense. Now, this story actually is very similar to a couple other stories. You've got a story in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, but there are some differences in those stories. Just as an example, Mary isn't named. In those stories, this occurs at Simon the leper's house, and it occurs on uh, like the coming Wednesday, so it's a few days from now. So we don't really know what's going on here. John may be combining or mixing some stories up. This could be uh, a separate story, although it's, boy, that's weird that you'd have two of these instances. So I don't know. The whole thing's a little bit weird. We think they're the same story, and John is probably doing the mixture, but whatever. We can't be sure. But what Mary was doing, okay, this was just a loving, intimate, extravagant thing to do. And as John's telling us, Judas Iscariot, he does not like it. He complains that this is all just a bunch of waste. I mean, it's nearly a year's wages. Why? It could have been very helpful for the poor, which, I mean, it sounds like a good good argument on the face, right, Samuel? Mm-hmm. But John kind of lets us in on the real story. Judas didn't really care about the poor. And this is the first we're hearing like this bad stuff about Judas, right? He says that Judas Judas just wanted the money to be in the money bag so that he could steal from it. Now, I know some of you, you could be excused for all of a sudden confusing this Judas Iscariot with a modern-day American politician, but I assure you this was back in the first century Israel, okay? Now, one additional point, this whole thing about touching the feet, this whole thing about loosing her hair, in public, the whole thing about anointing, this could all be easily understood as some sort of some sort of show of affection, maybe even like an availability for marriage. Now, it definitely doesn't have to be that. But I think we'd be unwise if we just, you know, like completely ignored that possibility. But here's the thing. I think we see John 
trying to sort of paint a picture like, you know what, there was a little something between Mary and Jesus. Now, it's important to note, it never came to anything, never came to fruition. But it's just interesting that John seems to want us to see a little something there, whereas the other gospel writers don't. But I'm just saying, I'm not saying that this is what's happening. I'm just saying, you know, it's an interesting possibility, and we probably shouldn't just toss it aside as if it means nothing. But anyway, if it wasn't some sort of, you know, like intimate thing, uh, it could have been merely just like excessive religious devotion. That's another way to look at it. I mean, we talked about her maybe being a disciple and, and you know, a little odd for women, but we know that, that it was real. That happened. It was, they existed. So maybe this is just uh, a religious devotion. I don't know. You can decide for yourself. Maybe it was one. Maybe it was both. Maybe it was neither. I don't know. But John, he, he seems to keep wanting to put it into the story. But anyway, Jesus defends Mary, what she has done. And the text here is kind of weird, kind of difficult. The story, on one hand, it has seemed really clear that she used it all. The, Mary's actions in verse 3, Judas, Judas's response in verse 5. However, in some translations, kind of like the ESV that we're reading here, they have verse 7, and the wording of it, I don't know, it's kind of suggesting that, well, maybe there would be some left over because she's going to keep it for his burial. And again, that's opposed to selling it for the poor. Now, other translations, though, when you look at their verse 7, they seem to suggest that she's saving it for his burial, however... She chose to use it at this moment because she knew what was coming. Maybe maybe she had some sort of prophetic insight or, you know, something of that nature. And so she's performing this as what we might view as a prophetic action of sorts. Now, there are other possibilities. We, we'll never really know. Either way, Jesus adds to the commentary, and we sort of get his take on it. He seems to think that her actions— were indeed as an anointing for burial. Now, whether Mary truly meant it that way or understood it that way or not, we, we don't know. But Jesus did, and he felt that it was appropriate. He felt that this was, you know, Mary bestowing honor and that that was a good thing to do. And his reasoning was this. You're, you're going to have the poor always and forever. They're just always going to be around. And, and they're always going to need help. And it's not denying in any way that that is a really important, important thing. It's a part of all of us imaging God. It's foundational. It's undeniable. However, it is also good to give honor where honor is due. And I don't know, it depends on how far you want to take it. Some might look at that and go, well, geez, in a way, Judas was right. You're kind of robbing the poor you know, to, to do this extravagant thing. Well, maybe, but however you want to see it, Jesus is approving it. So you need to somehow reconcile that within yourself that this is okay. Now, whether Judas's argument was sincere or not, uh, we have to acknowledge it was a good argument, but occasional, lavish expenditure on the deserving, those who deserve it, is in some sense, 
justified by a continuous expenditure on the real necessities of the poor. And what I'm saying here is you don't want to replace your spending on the poor with only spending on the extravagant. That's not the point at all. It's saying as long as there is a continual expenditure on the real necessities of the poor, as long as that's the norm, then this occasional lavish thing might actually not just be okay, but it might actually be good. And it fits into that whole idea of, look, Christianity, Judaism, whatever God is calling us to, enjoying and celebrating life, enjoying and celebrating living is an important aspect of the Christian walk. It's an important aspect of Torah. If you were to live in utter self-denial in every place and at all times, you're doing it wrong. And so we kind of see, you know, this little episode, this little event as uh, Jesus, I guess, acknowledging and and endorsing all of that. Mm -hmm. Totally. This is a really cool section uh, of the Gospels. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up this thing that John seems like he's continuing to place in his account of Jesus' life with this potential dynamic between Jesus and Mary. And I I think another reason that we shouldn't discount it is that it can allow us to see the faithfulness of Jesus even more by denying that possibility in his life. Like, it could have been seen to him as a potential temptation like mm-hmm. like man like i have this role as the messiah this duty to sacrifice myself for israel and ultimately the whole world but like there's a part of me that like wants to be a normal <laughs> jewish man in the first right. century and like have a a partner and a relationship and maybe a family one day like he had to deny those things as well so i don't know i I think that's a really cool um element to jesus's story that people don't explore um that adds to the nuance of what he accomplished yeah he was human yeah it's a really good point samuel now to be fair some people in history have taken it too far Oh, and, for sure. <laughs> yeah, they've made it seem like Jesus and Mary actually did have a thing going on and all that. It's kind of silly. There's nothing in yeah. the scriptures or history or anything I, to, to, to show that. But yeah, it does. It, it It's a reminder, yet again, of his humanity and his willingness to elevate God's will above his own. And uh, it's just, it's a cool picture. Cool picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and one last thing before we move on, um, I was wrestling, or I have been wrestling a, a lot with the the textual differences between the Matthew twenty six and the Mark fourteen version compared to this account here in John twelve. And I, maybe I'm reading into the text too much, but another way that it could work out that the that those two passages are also the exact same story as here in John twelve is. If we look back in John 12, uh, verse 1, it says, um, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. And I looked at the Greek for was, and it just says to be, to exist, to happen, to be present. So, I mean, in some ways you could read that and say that 
John is just saying like Jesus was in Bethany, you know, what that's the place where Lazarus lived, where he was, but maybe the dinner happened at Simon the leper's house. Like I mean, it 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 kind of sounds confusing why they would pack why Mary and Martha would pack everything up since they're so connected to Lazarus and go to someone else's house for the Sabbath meal, but I'm just saying that you can't rule it out as a possibility because John's text doesn't explicitly say that they're at Lazarus's house. Like, am I reading into the text too much here? Uh, no, no, but I think that there's a different point uh, that people focus on that is relevant. In John 12, 1, he very specifically says, six days before Passover. So we know that that is on Saturday. Mm-hmm. In the other stories, we know that it's Wednesday. We'll get there. You'll see that when we get there. So that's where people get this weird discrepancy. They're going, man, I mean, it sounds like the same story. We've got some weird details, but, I mean, they're happening on different days. And so that's why they try to find ways to reconcile it. Like, well, maybe John just kind of mixed up his stories. Or, you know, some people think, well, no, maybe it really is two different stories, you know, or whatever. So I don't know if that is – well, how's that sitting with you, Samuel? What's it's fine. Mean? I mean, we've said it before that not ha- not having a 100% identical <laughs> uh, agreement between the four Gospels actually bolsters its legitimacy because right, right. human accounts can't be identical if it's, go- if it's going to be authentic and accurate uh, based on how those people uh, perceive those events. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I kind of get where you were headed with your point. And, and I mean, you know, sure. I mean, that's also very interesting thinking, whatever. But in terms of, well, let's just say the modern argument over what's really happening here, they, what they care about is what day of the week it is, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know. But there is a lot of people struggle with this story and the one in Mark 14, Matthew 26. So, yeah. If, if they are different accounts, that's crazy. Like, isn't it? <laughs> By the end of Jesus' life, is like, man, that guy had his feet rubbed by uh, <laughs> <laughs> hands and hair yeah. wiped up. I mean, because there's another account in Luke 7 that seems different. Uh, right, Because right. That, that's at a... a that's much sh- earlier on, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the Pharisees' house that he was right. at. So yeah. it's just odd. It is. It is. And, you know, uh, again, it's really difficult for us to relate to from a cultural standpoint. It's all very different mm-hmm. then. And, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe it was just so much more common back then than we can understand and imagine. Maybe it's not as weird as it seems. I don't know. Yeah, it's, that's a good point. It, yeah, it's... But, yeah, I, t- I totally get you. I mean, that, that is, that's a lot of perfume and feet rubbing. So, anyway, uh, anything else before we go on? No, I've extended my boundary okay well let's continue with john let's see what else he's got to say john chapter 12 verses 9 through 11 when the large crowd of the jews learned that jesus was there they came not only on account of him but also to see lazarus whom he had raised from the dead so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
So, I mean, this is just getting out of hand. People are, mm-hmm. they, people are becoming irrational, losing their minds. So you got this large crowd of Jews. Now, it could be that these are those that we learned about at the end of chapter 11, whatever, we don't know. But whatever, whoever they are, they heard that Jesus was in Bethany. And so I think, naturally, they wanted to see him. And there was an even added bonus, if you want to think of it that way. If they went to see him now, they could also see Lazarus. He's that guy that got raised from the dead. And it's only a mile or two outside the city. So everything was in their favor. They went. They had to go see this guy. And then John, he kind of he kind of lets us in on some more of the behind-the-scenes story. He says that these same people that wanted Jesus dead, well, now they want Lazarus dead too. Now, just take a moment. Imagine you're Lazarus, okay? You're the only guy walking around on the earth that's been dead for four days and then brought back to life. And what reward do some people have waiting for you? <laughs> Let's kill him! <laughs> I mean, this poor guy, he can't win for losing. But why is it that they want him dead? It's because Lazarus's story was both incredible and yet at the same time completely credible. It was turning people's hearts. People were seeing it, or I guess hearing about it, and and they knew that it was true. They found Lazarus's story, and I guess you could say they found even Lazarus himself to be so compelling that they believed this Jesus was in fact God's Messiah. And so, in the chief priest's eyes, well, if we're going to eliminate Jesus, we may as well eliminate this guy too. Everything that's turning people's heads, we got to get rid of it. So this took me back while I was studying, and I just think this is so amazing. It's like I'm sitting here, and in my mind, what goes through my mind is, see, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that's back in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, it's actually true. They weren't listening to Moses— They weren't listening to the prophets, and they weren't believing when there was an actual man that had come back from the dead. And oh, by the way, in the parable, the guy's name was Lazarus, and Mm -hmm. the real guy that Jesus raised from the dead after four days, his name was Lazarus too. (laughs) And it's just like, oh my gosh, these guys are getting the truth, the facts, the reality just shoved in their face. And they are denying it. In fact, they're, you know, like they're getting their back up against it. You know, they, they didn't want it. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, that it's really cool that you bring up the the credible nature of Lazarus's story. Because if we also think back to the um, contextual detail that whenever Jesus went to Lazarus's home, they were in the middle of the mourning or the grieving ceremony for him uh and you had all those people at his home inside and then you had where uh, mary ran out to see jesus and we assume that you know a bunch of that, that would have been very shocking and because people were sitting shiva and more people would have come out and it, it was a very public 
thing right. that happened that many people saw. And it, it just adds to the nature that if you continue to have increasing credible accounts that this is God's Messiah, then these people who are wanting to arrest him and, you know, ultimately kill him, it it just seems like they they don't want Jesus to be their Messiah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's what they're bothered with. It's not the credibility nature. It's their uh, preconceived notion of who they want Messiah to be, and Jesus doesn't fit that description for them. Yeah. And what you've described is the citizens of that parable who sent a delegation saying, we do oh, not yeah. want this man to be our king. Yep. Yeah. It's exactly it. Exactly it. Yeah. It's a cool picture. Well, okay, so we're left here at an interesting point because now we're going to move on. We're going to go back to uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and this is actually, I I don't know, I think a lot of people sort of uh, mark this as the beginning of the triumphal entry. And I think we can go ahead and do this next little section because it's it, it acts as a setup to the story anyway, uh, and it's it'll be okay that we you know have to sort of do the cliffhanger, leave the story like we always do. This this isn't a bad spot, so we're going to go on to the next bit. We're looking at Matthew chapter twenty one, verses one through uh, five. Mark chapter eleven, verses one through three, and Luke chapter nineteen, verses twenty nine to thirty one. And I'm going to read from Matthew, and then I also want to point something out in Mark. So here we go. Uh, Matthew 21, 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then uh, one little bit over here in Mark. Let's see, in verse 2 he says, And he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied. And he adds this little bit, On which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So I'll, I'll explain why that might be important either Well, I'm not sure if that's going to make it in this episode or not, but we'll get there. (laughs) At least I pointed it out. So first of all, um, there's a lot of discussion, uh, confusion maybe, about Bethphage and Bethany. So so what what can I tell you here? Number one, it's assumed to be on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So, So you've got Jerusalem, and if you were traveling east away from Jerusalem, you would have the Mount of Olives... And then if you tipped over just to the other side of the mount, uh, then you would have Bethphage. And if you went, continued further, you would eventually make it to Bethany. And remember, that's just a couple of miles total. 
Now, John's gospel just had us in Bethany. So, you know, altogether, it's like, okay, we're probably in this Bethphage place. It's different from Bethany. The reason I say that is because some scholars seem to think they're the same place or whatever. It's kind of a weird argument and and discussion, and it's for people way smarter than us. So for our purposes, we're just going to go, look, there's Bethany, there's Bethphage, and Jesus, they're walking, they got to this other place. So anyway, uh, either way, we know that these stories are connecting. We got pretty good connection here. It's only a couple of miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, and Bethphage is likely on the way. And as I mentioned, it's it's like close to the top of the Mount of Olives, and it's situated situated on the eastern side. So as they're getting close to this village, Jesus sends two disciples on a mission, which makes them apostles yet again. The basic mission is this. Hey, go get me a donkey colt. But Jesus gives them some really good detail. It's kind of cool. He says, hey, I want you to go to this village, and as soon as you enter it, you're going to find a donkey and her colt. Now, to be fair, that's Matthew's version. In Mark and Luke, there's just one. Just just go get the colt. But anyway, he tells them, just go ahead and untie it, or them, and bring them back to me. And, and if we stopped right there, I mean, you know, you might think to yourself, gee, that kind of sounds a little bit like theft, doesn't it? <laughs> right? If you were sent on this mission, if you had no further detail, you might actually feel a little uncomfortable right at this moment. Hey, go steal me a donkey. But thankfully, Jesus continues. He adds that, hey, if anybody questions what you're doing, just say the Lord has need of it. Now, that's in Matthew. If we went in Mark, it says, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So it's like, no, 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 I'm not stealing it. I'm just borrowing it. And just so you know, it's because the Lord has need of it. And so he's telling them, just do that and the questioner will be satisfied. And again, at least now we're, we're on terms of borrowing. So you probably feel a little better as the guy going on the mission. And you might even start to feel like at this point, okay. This is a God thing, right? I mean, okay, you're sending me to do something. God's got this all in control. So we're you're feeling a lot better. So Matthew adds in his normal style this thing about this was done to fulfill prophecy. If you were trying to count, you would recognize that this was number nine of the ten times that Matthew does such a thing. But in this case, he refers to the prophet. And in this case, he means specifically Zechariah. And Samuel, why don't you read that from us in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay. Uh, You could, I'm guessing, you can hear the obvious connection between the two. Uh, One thing that's important, though, is that in Zechariah, he refers to a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And some people believe that that's why Matthew's account has two, because it's kind of doubled up in the Zechariah verse. And others think that, no, that's just Matthew's recollection of the story and, you know, whatever, who knows. But this was, this particular verse from Zechariah Before Jesus was ever on the scene, while Jesus was on the scene, after Jesus, it was a commonly understood reference to Messiah, 
outside of its original purpose, okay, everybody was like, oh man, this has got to be about Messiah. In fact, there came to be in in uh, Israel and Judaism, just generally speaking, the whole idea of a donkey, someone riding on a donkey, took on this almost like a hyper-messianic sort of analogy or indication or something like that. And and the reason was they started connecting it with a bunch of other verses in Scripture. Here's just one example. Uh, Samuel, read uh, Genesis 49, 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. All right. Now, that probably doesn't sound nearly as obvious to you or me or any of us, but in that particular section, Jacob is blessing each of his sons right before he dies. And this is while he's blessing his son Judah. What tribe did Jesus come from, Samuel? From Judah. Yeah. And this little thing about the donkey's colt, it became associated with Messiah. And so this just adds to that whole idea of someone riding on a donkey has this messianic connotation. And there are other places, uh, maybe Genesis 22.3, Genesis 32.5, Exodus 4.20, Isaiah 62.11, the list goes on. So from our perspective, you know, kind of looking in hindsight, well, you hear this little prophecy and it's, it's kind of hard to miss. But from their perspective, this was probably, you know, kind of a neat deal to be able to see that. The point is, Jesus is now hiding nothing. How many times, Samuel, in the Gospels did we see Jesus trying to keep who he was quiet? Quite often. It's got to be a pretty big number. Yeah, he did it a lot. And now all of a sudden, not only is he not hiding anything, he's actually making a very public and very explicit demonstration of who he is. Riding the donkey into Jerusalem... I, I mean, it's it's as if he rented a billboard and said, hey, hey I'm the Messiah, <laughs> right? It's a big deal. Every Jew would have picked up on this. So it's a very big deal. Now, we're going to go ahead and stop here, and, and it's kind of good, again, because this is the point where Jesus said, hey, this is what I want you to go do. Matthew sort of gives us a little extra insight into what this all means. When we come back in the next episode, we'll actually get to see them, you know, sort of walking this out in real life. So it's a pretty good place to stop. But Samuel, comments or questions? Yeah, uh, <laughs> the this very public and clear proclamation that he that Jesus is alluding that he is the Messiah in in the uh, lingo of Gen Z. He was quote straight flexing. Ah, I have no idea what you just said, but it sounds good. <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, w- with the 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 donkey, foal, colt associations with Messiah, does that mean that riding on donkeys was not very common in Jewish culture? Do you know that? You know, I don't know that, and it seems weird to me the the way you presented the question, because I would imagine that they did that all the time. I would imagine going to and from Jerusalem, lots of people were riding on donkeys, all that kind of stuff. So that is a really good question and an interesting point, 
but but somehow and maybe we could say it this way maybe we could say listen if you've got a whole bunch of people who are you know believing you are the messiah claiming you are the messiah or we could even go further and say you know curious and wondering if you are the messiah if you are the center of attention for that very specific purpose well then riding a donkey into Jerusalem okay maybe at that point it's like haha now it's unmistakable sure we see people riding donkeys every day but this guy into Jerusalem at Passover i mean it's like this is everything we expect so maybe maybe it's you know that very very specific context that makes it so clear to the people okay Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> you sound so convinced. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm buffering at the moment yeah. trying to fit yeah. all the pieces together. Um, yeah. And while we're at it, uh, any chance you can say anything about that whole elephant in the room about no one's ever sat on this colt or donkey, or do, do we have to wait until next week for that? You know what? I think we should wait. Okay. Yeah, I think we should wait because we're going to explain it and why it maybe, you know, is of interest or whatever, uh, but it's going to make more sense when we get to the part where they actually go do stuff. Okay. Yeah, so just remember it. And then, you know, I just, I, one more thought, the idea of how do we know that this was such a very public and clear proclamation? Well, again, when you see what people do in response to his riding in on a donkey— that also sort of adds to the whole uh, imagery. So and that'll be coming up in the next episode as well. Gotcha. So, yeah. Anyway, anything else? No, I think we should head on out of here. All right, stick a fork in it. We're done. Okie dokie. Oh! Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Be sure to leave us ratings and reviews. And you can find out more information about us and the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.